This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power Politics Podcast for Monday, November 13th. On the pod today, Israeli troops reach the gates of Gaza's largest hospital as the health system nears total collapse. We'll get the latest on the situation in Gaza from the UN agency that oversees the Palestinian territories and from Doctors Without Borders in just a moment. Plus, the largest group of Canadians got out of Gaza yesterday. We'll bring you an update on the evacuations from our reporter on the ground in Cairo. And the power panel will weigh in on what we're likely to see in the government's economic update next week. A health system on the brink of total collapse. That is the situation in Gaza, where the two largest hospitals are running out of fuel and power. According to the Hamas-run health ministry, more than 11,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza. The CBC's Ellen Morrow is in Jerusalem. So, Ellen, we heard from an Israel Defense Forces spokesperson today. What did he tell us about the operation in Gaza? Well, David, Israel is very clearly trying to make its case to the world, its argument that Hamas uses hospitals as a human shield. We had a press conference tonight from Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, uh, a main IDF spokesperson, Israel Defense Forces, and he showed a video at that press conference that he said showed him just hours before at the Rantisi Hospital in Gaza City. That's a children's hospital uh, in Gaza City. And in these videos, uh, Hagari goes into the basement of Rantisi Hospital and says that there is clear evidence that it was used as a Hamas position, showing uh, weapons, explosives that were found inside. Here's a bit of what he said in that video. Underneath the hospital, in the basement, we found a Hamas command and control center, suicide bomb vests, grenades, AK-47 assault rifles, explosive devices, RPGs and other weapons, computers, money, etc. And we also found signs that indicate that Hamas held hostages here. Hagari says the signs of hostages uh, there at Rantisi Hospital uh, include an improvised toilet that he showed in one of those videos, as well as a baby bottle. Uh, Hagari also said that troops found a Hamas tunnel uh, beside the hospital and near a nearby school. And this video from Hagari tonight is coming, David, as Israel faces growing pressure and criticism for the fierce fighting we've seen around several hospitals in Gaza City over recent days. Okay, well, one of those hospitals, Ellen, is Al-Shifa Hospital, the biggest hospital in Gaza, and the situation there is is quite dire. What's the latest uh, at Al-Shifa? Well, every update we get regarding Al-Shifa just really gets worse. The World Health Organization tonight saying that Al-Shifa is turning into a cemetery, that there are dead bodies piling up both outside and inside the facility with nowhere to take them. Uh, One of the images we've had from the hospital is really disturbing to look at. It shows premature babies lying side by side on a hospital bed, their tiny bodies on a hospital bed, uh, with aluminum foil on the side. Really a last-ditch effort to try to keep them warm. Hospital officials, the head of pediatrics, told Reuters that they can't 
keep the babies warm because there's no power in the facility and therefore incubators uh, can't run. So a really dire picture there. Six babies have died. They fear that more uh, could die. Israel said that it would help evacuate the babies, but there's no detail on that plan uh, when or if it will actually happen. There are also hundreds of people uh, believed to be still sheltering inside and outside of the facility. Now, there's been fierce fighting around Al-Shifa for days at this point. Uh, like Rantisi, Israel says that there is a command post. Uh, this is Israel's argument that there's a command post for Hamas in tunnels underneath of Al-Shifa. Hamas and doctors at the hospital have denied that. And as I said earlier, there has been growing criticism for the strikes and the fighting around the hospital coming from the UN, coming from the WHO and Doctors Without Borders. And there's more pressure on Israel tonight regarding the fighting around the hospital. It's coming from President Biden, who said that he would like to see less intrusive action around Al-Shifa, David. Ellen, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Ellen Morrow in Jerusalem. You're welcome. Well, as Ellen mentioned, the dire situation at that hospital has prompted strong international reaction, including from U.S. President Joe Biden. And it's my hope and expectation that uh, there will be uh, less intrusive action relative to the hospital. Uh, we're in contact and we're with, uh, with the Israelis. Joseph Bellavo is the executive director of Doctors Without Borders Canada. Joseph, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, David. Uh, all of the news we're hearing about the situation at El Shifa Hospital is, is pretty grim right now. What's the latest you're hearing from your workers who are at that particular facility? Yeah, it's been a brutal, violent weekend. Um, we received a text message uh, from one of my nurse colleagues uh, that was on Friday, basically saying, we are being killed here. Please help us. Uh, he went on to describe he was sheltering in the basement of Al-Shifa with, uh, with his family and several other families and went on to describe how the shelling uh, was in and so so close uh, to the facility and even hitting the facility uh, from time to time that his, his children were just screaming in fear. And my um, several other colleagues, it's been really patchy, really difficult to, to, to piece together what exactly has occurred over the weekend, but we have gotten bits of text messaging and and information, uh, colleagues having to run up to the to the fourth floor, hoping to get a little bit of contact with the outside world, and then and then updating us. Uh, and indeed, the the hospital and the surroundings have been bombarded relentlessly uh, throughout the weekend. The, the maternity ward was hit directly. The outpatient ward was hit directly. Apparently, the generator it's, it's lost uh, all electricity now. Apparently, the generator was also hit uh, as well. So, uh, no no more electrification. Uh, this has meant one, one doctor uh, uh, said that we lost two neonates, so newborn, uh, premature newborn babies uh, who are in incubators. Uh, the incubators lose electrification and, uh, and two of those babies died. There are about three dozen others uh, neonates uh, in that situation uh, whose lives are at risk uh, as well. Um, so it really has become very desperate over the weekend. This was a nightmare scenario. We've been speaking with doctors in the facility about losing power, the ventilators, the incubators. Um, none of those uh, can, can work, obviously, without fuel. But we're also seeing something else, uh, Joseph, from uh, MSF International on, on their social media. It, it appears to be a message they got from one of the staff in the hospital talking about there being a sniper outside the hospital that has shot people. Uh, including maybe patients. What do you know about that? What can you tell us about that? 
heard heard similar uh, from from uh, my my colleagues as well. It's not exactly clear who the sniper is, who they're affiliated to, uh, what their aims are. Uh, he did speak of uh, several uh, patients, people uh, in the hospital who were uh, struck by sniper fire uh, and the injuries and wounds that they uh, suffered because of it. Um, he also went on to describe how, uh, just how, obviously, how incredibly unsafe it is in the facility and, and outside as well. And, you know, we've, we've been hearing these calls, you know, for weeks now, and particularly over the last few days, get out of the hospital, evacuate. The hospital uh, is, 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 is going to be uh, under attack. It indeed has been under the attack. But that order, get out, uh, is, is impossible. First off, because there are so many people that we simply cannot move. Some of these neonates or people in intensive care, uh, extremely wounded people who, who cannot walk. Uh, at this, so, and there's no way to like to physically transport them. And secondly, uh, one of my doctors was describing over the weekend how when uh, some people did try to leave the facility, they were they were bombed. They were right. they were struck uh, as as well. The, the neonates should talk about the babies. We, we've seen pictures uh, shown to us by our reporter Ellen Morrow of doctors putting tinfoil on the sides of the incubators to try to keep the babies warm, saying they can't keep them warm. We've seen reports that this hospital, which is the largest in Gaza, is essentially not functioning right now. I, I mean, is it just low-tech, zero-power uh, treatment that, that people are providing there now? I, I mean, what is the, the functionality level of this hospital? Well, and, and just to recall that before the weekend, this was already an, an incredibly desperate situation. Hundreds of people, my, my colleagues are, are estimating 600 uh, inpatients, inpatients uh, at the moment in this facility, plus so many others who've been trying to seek some measure of safety on hospital grounds in the belief that hospital grounds and medical spaces must be protected as they must be under the rules of, of, of war under international humanitarian law. Um, and, and in these uh, circumstances of, of so many people and so many medical needs, uh, one doctor was describing how they've uh, reverted to using vinegar uh, to treat infections, how they're performing uh, surgeries uh, on, on the floor uh, without painkillers, without gauze uh, to stem the flow of, uh, of bleeding. Uh, so, th- so these just absolute desperate uh, circumstances already uh, before this weekend uh, and now uh, it's 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 just almost hard to imagine. There, there's no justification uh, on the grounds of, of humanity, and certainly no justifications on the grounds of international humanitarian law for the for the continued bombardment and violence against non-combatants uh, in in this in, in in these hospital facilities. The justification we have seen uh, from the Israel Defense Forces is that. Al-Shifa is used as a command and control center by Hamas, that they're in tunnels underneath, they're in the compound somewhere, or maybe in the basement. They showed video today of, of what they found in, in a now-evacuated children's hospital in Gaza that they say is pretty conclusive proof that Hamas was operating out of the basement there. What are your people in Al-Shifa telling you about this? Do they know, are they telling you that Hamas is operating in that hospital? Certainly not out of the basement and not out of the, out of the facility itself. Uh, we have no way uh, of verifying uh, how close Hamas is, whether they're underground or, or not underground, where they're hiding. We certainly we're, we're not qualified uh, and don't have the information to, to verify that one way or another. What we can absolutely verify is the number of uh, civilians, uh, and and the majority of them are women and children. These are people and babies. We just talked about neonites. These are these are people who who very obviously 
cannot even uh, participate in, in hostilities, let alone be part of a warring uh, force uh, against the Israeli army. So, so what we can verify is this is, is the continued and egregious violations. So the, the continued pattern of bombing medical facilities, the siege warfare, you know, for since the beginning now, they, my, my colleagues were just talking over the weekend again, how they've completely now run out of food and out of water. So, you know, you, you ask about the kind of conditions. Yes, my colleagues are also, you know, facing that and continuing to face that intense dilemma. Should I leave or, or, or should I stay? And they keep coming back and saying, we cannot abandon our patients. If I leave, one surgeon was saying, he said, if I leave, who, who will treat them? And so they're, they're choosing to stand by uh, these people in the midst of, uh, of such egregious violations. And it's why MSF, Doctors Without Borders, very unusually coming out to call for a ceasefire instead of saying, please, in the midst of war, respect humanity, respect the spaces uh, for, for humanitarian action. That is just, just so consistently not happened that we're actually now calling for a ceasefire. So, so Joseph, what happens in, in the next 24 hours? If people can't leave because of the bombardments around the hospital and near the hospital, there's a sniper of unknown you know, agency outside, apparently, but the power is gone or largely gone, and, and you don't have the basic medical supplies you need to function. I mean, what happens in the next 24 hours at Al-Shifa? We lost a, a colleague earlier in the week. Uh, his his home was uh, was hit. Uh, he and many members of his family were were killed earlier in the week. Um, I we don't have consistent contact with uh, with all of our uh, doctors and nurses and medical colleagues who are there. I, I fear very much. I, I can hear the fear in their voices. I can hear it in their messages when they when they tell us that people are being killed around them. That they might be killed next. Um, you know, when when they write on the on the whiteboard where we used to write surgical uh, cases, instead of writing the number of surgical cases uh, needed for that week, they're writing, uh, "We did what we could. Uh, please remember us." So, what happens in the next uh, in the next few days if it continues to go like this? Uh, many more people will 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 die. I, I I don't know. I don't know how it could get worse. I I, I just know that people's lives are are at imminent danger. Joseph Bellavo, Executive Director of Doctors Without Borders Canada, thanks so much for your time again today. Thank you, David. The largest group of people yet with ties to Canada is now safely out of Gaza. Citizens, permanent residents and their families have been trickling out of the territory into Egypt. The only border crossing opens and closes unpredictably, and hundreds of Canadians are still waiting to leave. The CBC's Tom Perry is in Cairo. The buses carrying more than 230 Canadians arrived early this morning here in Cairo after making the long drive from Rafa. Canadians had been waiting at the Rafa crossing. It had been closed for two days. It finally reopened and this large group of Canadians, the largest group we've seen so far, managed to make its way through, make it here to Cairo early this morning. Throughout the day at the Canadian Embassy, diplomats have been working with this newest batch of evacuees, going through their paperwork, getting their visas taken care of, looking at tickets to either go back home to Canada or to whatever their next destination might be. We spoke to some of the evacuees today, and they tell a very similar story in that they're 
relieved to be out of danger, relieved to be here in Egypt, but worried about the people they left behind in Gaza. My family, my brother, my brother's wife, and my niece did get out. My, my mother and my little brother and sister, they didn't. They didn't. Even though we all were all registered as one group, one family, and my husband were all together. So four of us did get out, and four of us are still there. I called my sister today. And she told me they are good. My, my, my sister, she is in hospital, in the Shifa hospital. Maybe you, you heard about that. The, the situation there is very hard and they are not safe. There were no Canadian names on the list that came out today, the list of people permitted to cross the Rafa crossing. The priority right now seems to be to clear the backlog. There were a lot of names on lists that came out over the past week. The priority right now seems to be to get rid of those lists before moving on to new ones. What that means, though, for Canadians still in Gaza is that they may have to wait, and it's not sure how long, to get onto these new lists so that they can get permission to leave Gaza, to come through the Rafah crossing, to make their way here to Egypt and then on to wherever, but at least to get to safety. Tom Perry, CBC News, Cairo. We are now in week five of the Israel-Hamas war. As of Sunday night, more than 70 trucks carrying aid have been able to enter Gaza. On board were health supplies, bottled water, blankets, tents, and hygiene products, but no fuel. And the UN is warning the shortage of fuel could shut down all aid work in Gaza by tomorrow. Julia Tuma is the director of communications for the UN agency that oversees the Palestinian territories. We've reached her in Jerusalem. Julia, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. So as we speak, uh, you're very close to running out of fuel. What happens when UNRWA runs completely dry? A humanitarian crisis that has been looming will become a catastrophe in a couple of days when UNRWA, which is the largest humanitarian organization working in the Gaza Strip, will run out of fuel. We will not be able to bring in assistance to 800,000 people who are sheltering in our facilities. We will not be able to drive trucks to the border with Egypt and pick up very basic supplies that are coming into Gaza. We will not be able to send any fuel to the water pumping stations in our um, shelters. We were supporting bakeries, for example, with wheat flour. We won't be able to do that. And we were supporting medical facilities as well. So fuel has been used over the past one month as a weapon of war in addition to water and food. We are running out of fuel. We've been asking for urgent deliveries of fuel, but our calls have been falling on deaf ears. So, so we've heard concerns about a lack of fuel uh, almost since the beginning of this conflict. So how has UNRWA and others been able to, to maintain even the level of service you've had right now if fuel has been in short supply for weeks? What measures have you had? We've to rationed. Yep. Sorry. Yeah, we, exactly. We, 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 took, we took some measures. Um, we took some very difficult decisions. We've rationed the use of the fuel including for our, our own vehicles, but we delivered, for example, less fuel to medical facilities. We delivered less fuel to the bakeries that we were supporting with our wheat flour. 
So there were some decisions like that, but we were also able through coordination with the Israeli authorities to access existing supplies of fuel that are inside the Gaza Strip. Um, last week we did the last round and even that depot is now, has now emptied up. And this is why we're asking once again for the urgent delivery of fuel. You see all these trucks that have been coming into Gaza with basic supplies like food and uh, drinking water and um, pharmaceuticals and, and other basic items did not have any fuel. So we really need fuel because it has been almost five weeks now with no fuel, not to UNRWA and not to any other humanitarian organization inside the Gaza Strip. So obviously there's an acute focus on what happens in the hospitals if they run out of fuel. We've talked to many people about incubators shutting off and ventilators shutting off and, and just operating rooms not having electricity to function. But we're also talking about water pumps. We're talking about sanitation, removing of waste, ambulances off the road. It, it, it's sort of down to that level where even those fundamental basic services, what, by Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, would have to stop? What, what's your sense of, of when things are completely exhausted? I think in a few days. I mean, it's very hard to be scientific mm -hmm. on to when everything will shut down because it depends on the fuel stock of each of these organizations, right? So there's no scientific accurate answer to this. What we do know is that there's, there's no shipment of fuel and it has been five weeks with no shipments of fuel. I mean, this is a place where 2.2 million people live. How can a place, any place in the world function if there is no fuel? So 2.2 million people live in Gaza, at least at the start of this conflict. You say about 800,000 of them are now in shelters. What will happen in your shelters um, when, the, when the gas runs out? The, the places where people have come and sought refuge, mainly the UNRWA buildings, they are overcrowded. I mean, we have reports that hundreds of people are sharing one toilet as an example. Sanitary conditions are absolutely appalling. We do not have enough supplies to cater to the needs of people. People have come to the UNRWA facilities because they trust UNRWA, because they know UNRWA, because they were asking for protection and safety under the UN flag. But we do not have the supplies to give to everyone in need because we had planned for much, much less people, even in our worst scenario planning, we planned for one-fourth of the number of people who are now in our shelters. So, so clearly, um, you need cooperation from Israel uh, to get fuel into the Gaza Strip. We've seen the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations say that many of the 100-plus workers in your organization who have been killed may, in fact, have been part of Hamas. Uh, given that posture and given the security concerns of Israel, is there any hope that you can get fuel in uh, through the Rafa crossing? Do you think Israel might allow it at this point? First of all, let me affirm that our colleagues, all our colleagues who work with UNRWA in the Gaza Strip and anywhere in the region, these are United Nations workers. Since the war began, 102 of my colleagues have been killed in Gaza. These are colleagues who were teachers, who were doctors, who were engineers, who were school principals, who were support staff. Normally, what happens with UNRWA is when we recruit people, they go through 
a vetting and screening process. And then UNRWA shares the lists every single year of all our staff members with the host governments across the region and with the State of Israel as an occupying power. Today, around the world, the UN flags everywhere in the world was taken to half-mast in recognition of the memory of these colleagues that we lost and in recognition and in memory for the service that they have done, some of them for decades on end, for the Palestinian communities in the Gaza Strip. No, I appreciate that. Um, it's important to know that they're vetted and greenlit before they can do that, and the list is shared with Israel because the ambassador's comments certainly uh, caught people's attention. But but have you gotten any sense on whether they'll be flexible on letting fuel supplies in, or is it still the same hard line that they're worried it'll be diverted by Hamas and used for military objectives? Look, David, the United Nations, UNRWA, the agency where I work, we are asking for fuel for humanitarian purposes so that we're able to continue to undertake the humanitarian obligation that we were entrusted with by the member states. We are asking for the fuel. And so we need fuel. And where we stand right now is that our barrels are emptying completely. And if we do not get fuel, we will not be able to continue to deliver humanitarian assistance to people in need. UNRWA will not be able to deliver humanitarian assistance to people in need. We've seen the images coming out of the hospitals, Al Shifa in particular, over the weekend. We've heard of babies dying because there wasn't enough electricity uh, for incubators. Um, what happens to the hospitals of Gaza if this fuel embargo doesn't, doesn't change? They will stop functioning. Many of them have already because of the siege and because of the war. But more will stop functioning. Al-Shifa is the largest hospital in the Gaza Strip. Um, it is also, in addition to it being a hospital, it's also hosting tens of thousands of people in its parking lots and in its courtyards. We at UNRWA have been able to access Shifa only once in the past five weeks, and we did not even deliver fuel. We were not allowed to deliver fuel. We delivered with the World Health Organization some medicine and basic emergency supplies. In one month, this is what we were able to do. Julia Tuma, I, I want to offer my condolences on the loss of your colleagues, and I want to thank you very much for your time. We appreciate you speaking with us today. Thank you, David. Well, the Conservative Party nationally continues to hold more than 10 points lead ahead of the governing Liberals in the polls. And recent abacus data found that uh, those polled about Prime Minister Justin Trudeau found over half had a negative view of him, while 29% having a positive one. But has this big of a gap in the polls always meant defeat for a governing party? To look at this and find out what history tells us about political leaders and their best before date, we're joined by Eric Grenier, founder of the writ.ca. Eric, good to see you. Good to be here. All right, so bad numbers there for Justin Trudeau. No way to spin those, uh, so some liberals are trying. What have the numbers we were seeing for Trudeau historically meant for a federal party's re-election chances? 
Uh, usually it's not very good. And, you know, there's only been polling since about the 1940s. And if you stack up all the uh, past prime ministers in terms of where they stood about two years before an election, Justin Trudeau would be pretty much at uh, near the bottom of the list. If we look at the ones who have been at the bottom of the list, Justin Trudeau right now in the polls, depending on the poll you're talking about, there's one that just came out, had them at behind by 16 points, but around 14 points is where they stand. But if you look at the only other cases where you're two years out from an election, uh, the examples aren't very good. 14-point deficit for uh, what was Pierre Trudeau's Liberals at the time before John Turner went down to defeat in 1984. You go to the next election in 1988, two years before that one, uh, the PCs actually were able to turn a huge deficit. They were behind by about 15 points in 1986, but that was, of course, the free trade election. And then the most maybe memorable example would be the 1993 election uh, when Brian Mulroney in 1991 was down by about 23 points. So things could be a lot worse for Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. But when you're looking at those historical pretexts, this historical uh, examples, uh, most of the time when you're down this far out from an election by this much, right. it is tough to uh, mount a comeback. Okay, so so when parties have been this far down in the polls, some of them win. I mean, what's been the path back to favorability? Well, I think that we, uh, the case of the uh, 88 uh, PCs and Brian Mulroney, you know, in 1986, in, in the midpoint of their first mandate, uh, things were going pretty badly for them. Their cabinet had a lot of scandals, that kind of thing. But by 1988, uh, Brian Mulroney was able to galvanize uh, public opinion around the issue of the fr of free trade. And I think that's maybe what the Liberals uh, might need in this kind of example, is that the next election needs to be about something big in order to get people to... Uh, you know, put their minds uh, past uh, the record of the government. But one of the things that you have to point out with the cases that I brought up, you know, uh, Pierre Trudeau and John Turner in 1984, the Liberals had been in power for most of the last few decades. In 1993, the PCs had been in power for nearly 10 years. And in 1988, that was only the first term government for right. Brian Mulroney. Pierre Trudeau will be, uh, Justin Trudeau, excuse me, will be going for his first, fourth consecutive election victory, and that is tough to win. Right. Uh, you know, four w would be historic. So what does Canadian political history tell us? I mean, what, what patterns do you see about how long a prime minister and a party can stay in office? Yeah, it is very difficult to win four consecutive elections for a party. If we look at the cases where there has been an attempt to do that, uh, most of the recent ones... Uh, have ended in defeat or a little bit of an asterisk. You know, you can go back to uh, Louis Saint Laurent in 1949, was able to win a fourth consecutive election for the Liberals. The case there was that those streaks of victory started with Mackenzie King. Uh, Diefenbaker was defeated in 63 in his fourth attempt. Je uh, Pierre Trudeau nearly defeated in 1972, but was able to win re-election. But again, this was a change of leadership in the course of those four elections. Same thing with 2004 and the Liberals' Paul Martin. The first three wins were by Jean Chrétien, and the most recent example was Stephen Harper in 2015 going for that fourth consecutive victory. And it's just really hard to do it. The last ones who have been able to do it, who are both leading of a party uh, and you know leading the government for four consecutive elections, was Wilfrid Laurier, uh, and that was in 1908. And that's a little bit you know, before our time, David. Uh, yes, uh, slightly. I, I'm not sure what political lessons we could take from elections in 1908 uh, as well. So uh, there seems to be a best before date. I, I mean, why do you think there seems to be this time limit for prime ministers? I mean, this, this is something that we talk about in federal politics and provincial politics, that there tends to be this two to three term, uh, you know, best before date, like you said, for governments. And I think it's just because 
you know, when you are uh, one the first time, people are usually pretty excited about it. The second time, well, they're not going to kick you out just that fast. It's the third and the fourth time. It's when you're starting to get that baggage that is starting to weigh you down. If the only thing we knew about this government was that they were going for their fourth consecutive victory, you would suggest that they would already be in trouble regardless of how well things had right. gone for them over the previous years. So I think that is really what is challenging for the Liberals right now is that they have that baggage from the last uh, you know times that they've been in office. But also that a lot of the decisions, a lot of the communications, a lot of things that have happened over the last two years have turned people away from the liberals. So they're going up against the clock, but they're also going up against the record over the last little while. And some of that is starting to catch up to them. Right. So, you know, this is, is the Trudeau Liberal Party. He brought them back in 2015. They've been there uh, for eight, almost nine years now. He's been emphatic saying he's going for it again. I mean, the minute he says he's not everything starts to fall apart internally. But, you know, how, how long, presuming he's telling the truth here, how long, uh, how does the length that he's been in power factor into the re-election chances here? Yeah, I think that is really the challenge here because we have seen in lots of cases in the past that uh, when a party has been able to get re-elected after this many terms in office, it's because often they have changed the leader of the party, the premier, the prime minister, because it gives a fresh face to the government. So you almost can convince voters that this is a new uh, a new direction. And if there is, is a new leader that comes in with a new direction, then they can actually make the claim that they are not really just following in the footstep of the previous government. But that is really the challenge is that to find a new leader is easier said than done. There was polling that was done by Abacus Data recently suggesting that more people who say uh, aren't voting for the Liberals right now would consider voting for the Liberals if Justin Trudeau resigned. But that's a perfect scenario where they don't know who the replacement is. And it's very possible that the replacement could be even worse mm. for these voters than Justin Trudeau. So it's not a silver bullet by any means that changing a leader means that you suddenly get a renewed uh, you know, rejuvenation of life for a government. It can sometimes also mean that people just see that the new face is a lot like the old face and, you know, they didn't like the old face and the new face gets defeated. All right, Eric, always appreciate the insight. That's Eric Grenier, founder of the writ.ca. Thanks, man. Opposition leaders are talking about their economic plans ahead of next week's fall economic statement. Cap spending and cut waste to get rid of the inflationary deficit so we can bring down inf interest rates. What we want to see happen when it comes to pharmacare is a plan that helps all Canadians and it lowers the cost of medication. In the fall economic statement, the other piece that we're really pushing for is real action on housing. Finance Minister Christian Freeland's office says next Tuesday's economic update will focus on job creation, housing, and affordability. So obviously, politics are going to factor into the government's plan here. So we're going to talk about that with the power panel. Lisa Raitt is a former conservative cabinet minister, now the vice chair of Global Investment Banking with CIBC Capital Markets. And here with me in Ottawa, Vandana Cotter is a political consultant and a former advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Rob Russo is the former CBC Parliamentary Bureau Chief, now writing for The Economist Gang. Good to see you. Thanks for coming in. Happy Monday. Hello, David. So, Vandana, let's start uh, with what the Liberals need to do uh, eight days from now. It seems to me they've got two big relationships they need to manage, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP and Canadian voters in general. What do they need to put on the table next week? Well, I think the most important thing is Canadian voters. They need to show two things. One, they need to show that they are in lockstep with them, that they're not a tired government either, that they can still deliver for them. And that's why you're seeing that, you know, two-track missions. You're going to see cutting spending with Minister Anand, you know, cutting things like as, as Canadians tighten their belts, they want to see their government doing the same thing. They're going to want to see people cutting things like travel, as Minister Anand has talked about, uh, consultants. But also, where is the government going to invest in their success? on affordability, on housing. And I think, you know, Canadians don't want to see austerity. 
but they want to see strategic investments in what Canadians and making sure that there's a government that can deliver for them. Do you think we'll actually see a drop in the nominal amount of spending, or do you think we'll see a slowing of the rate of growth of spending? Do you know what I mean? I think you'll see like strategic cuts, cuts that make sense. I don't think you'll see anything that is vast, anything that is shocking to people. But places where you can see programs sunsetting, you can see where, okay, we can cut here, but also after eight years, just reviewing and being like, where is there extra stuff here that we just don't need anymore? And where can we invest that back into Canadians? Lisa, it's a big challenge, right? Because you've got Treasury Board President uh, Anita Anand, she's there and trying to say she's going to bring some, some you know, uh, balance back I- into government spending, while at the same time there's this urgent demand for movement on housing and affordability and a bunch of other issues. I mean, h- how do they approach this? Well, I hope that they're thinking about what's best for Canada at the end of the day, not just what's best for their political futures, because we're in a mess, quite frankly. We've got some serious structural issues that we have to solve. And just to put a fine point on exactly the difficulty that Christia Freeland has rolling up to this fall economic update is the fact that there's not a lot of ancillary spending in there. You can go after the travel, you can go after the consulting, you can go after the coffee that you spend on meetings. But the reality is, is that you got two big chunks of money out the door, individual transfers and provincial transfers, huge amount of money. You can't impact that. And the other one is the money you spend on the public sector meaning the people and their jobs. And I can't imagine a Liberal government is going to come out and start talking about, realistically, how many jobs they're going to cut in the delivery of services. But that really is the only way for you to get to the bottom of trying to cut back on government spending. The rest is superfluous. Rob, uh, what do you think we're going to see next week then from the government? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually surprised they're even mentioning $500 million in cuts. I, I think they're doing it as a nod to curmudgeonly people like me who've suggested that they've never really hit their targets. But $500 million is one-tenth of 1% of the total budget. It's not going to be hard to find that. At the same time, I think what's going to happen is the, there's going to be a, slow, a slowing in the growth of, uh, of spending. Uh, Look, we're going into tough times. The um, deputy governor of the Bank of Canada last week, Carolyn Rogers, said, uh, don't expect interest rates to come down uh, anytime soon. Uh, And that means people are really going to be feeling it. About 20 percent of Canadians will see their mortgages turn over next year and have to renew them at much higher rates. Um, The government's going to have to spend money in in order to 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 address the affordability problems that a lot of people are going to be facing next year. So I I would expect uh, a lot more is going to be spent, uh, but not necessarily where uh, Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader, wants it to be spent. I don't think that we're going to see universal daycare. Um, And pharmacare. uh, That's right. I'm sorry. Pharmacare. We've already seen universal daycare. You're right. Uh, I, I think that the Liberals are going to try and say to them, uh, look, uh, we just can't afford it right now. Um, and most of the people who support uh, the NDP and a lot of the people who are going to uh, Pierre Poilievre, union workers, are already covered. So they're going to look after the people who have no pharmacare now. And I think that is, is going to be uh, delivered under the cloak of affordability as well. So, so, so if on that, I, I mean... Is that going to be enough, do you think, to keep the NDP support? I mean, laying the framework uh, for national pharmacare is right there in the confidence and supply agreement. I mean, how far can they push it without uh, risk and blowback? I think it's, you know, to Jagmeet's advantage, too. I think at the end of the day, um, Mr. Singh has to prove that he's done something. And I think this supply and confidence agreement, he's been able to say that the NDP has been able to champion XYZ. 
And right. I think he has to keep that. And without the supply and cost agreement, he doesn't have that. But do you think he'll see Pharmacare progress uh, enough next week uh, to keep him happy? Um, I'm sure he'll work through that, but they'll, or he'll say, like, we're working through a deal, or he'll, he'll try to push for what needs to happen next. And maybe they don't go the full way, maybe it's not universal, but maybe they'll cut for people who just don't have those benefits. So you're right, union workers, they have benefits, but growing up, my parents didn't have benefits. They were new immigrants, but that's mm-hmm. probably has a very small population. I now have, like, you know, a full-time job that gives me benefits. Mm-hmm. Not everyone has that. So I think as long as Jagmeet Singh can say, we can deliver to the most vulnerable, I think he has a win there. Lisa, what, what do you think? I, I mean, there's a couple of messages coming out here, right, on, on the need for a little bit of restraint, but then also to, to meet these targets. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you sort of get that deficit moving in a different direction, the debt-to-GDP ratio moving in a different direction mm-hmm. when, you know, the economy is headed for what appears to be a slump and still deliver on the needs and, and this core promise that the NDP now says is a red line for them? Well, it'll be interesting to see how the NDP react. I uh, I wonder, though, if Christia Freeland takes it upon herself to just say, you know, we can't afford this anymore. We just can't afford it. We're going to do the right thing. We're going to tell Canadians straight up what's going on and provide on pharmacare to the extent that they can, but not the fullness of what the NDP are actually expecting, anticipating or want, quite frankly. But the reality is it's just back in Jagmeet Singh's court then for him to determine whether or not he's going to forge ahead, um, vote against the budget, and maybe the Liberals can find another dancing partner with, with the Bloc Québécois. You, you just We're in such a strange time right now that I don't know how important that, that, uh, that agreement is anymore between the NDP and the Liberals. It is just a very odd time. Well, I- Rob, I, I know the Conservatives have tried to paint uh, the Liberals and the Bloc as, as uh, another coalition, even though there is no coalition of any kind uh, in government. You know, that, that implies cabinet posts across party lines. Um, but, but do you think the Liberals, I mean, they have to keep that going, don't they? I, I mean, I know Jeremy Broadhurst, who's run campaigns for them in the past, has left the PMO to go work for the party to get ready for the next election. Uh, some people maybe think that's a sign it could become earlier, but it doesn't seem like the segment we just did with Eric, you look at the polls, it doesn't seem like you want to yeah. risk that. It's in no one's interest right now to have an election except for the Conservative Party. Yeah, campaign. exactly. So, uh, but but the uh, coll- collapse of the of, of the agreement between the NDP and the Liberals doesn't mean that the, the government will collapse. Uh, yeah. I think we saw the Conservatives and the Liberals voting mm-hmm. together uh, against a, a motion by Jagmeet Singh last week. The Liberal Conservative Coalition. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a coalition <laughs> loser last week. It, it, it really was. But that tells you really that no party has the balance of power in, right. in this parliament and that the government can govern on, a, on an issue by issue basis for some time, for as long as they want. I think M- M- Mr. Singh needs to decide if he looks at the resolution that came out of the NDP convention binding him to, uh, to uh, uh, walk away from it if they don't deliver on pharmacare. There is no time limit to it. So he could say, we're getting half a loaf now, and we've pressed the Liberals for the other half of the loaf mm. b- before uh, uh, the agreement expires in 2025. That could be a way out for him. Valera, though, you think your crowd wants to go back to issue by issue, vote for, by vote? You know, they, they, uh, they seem to have enjoyed the confidence and supply agreement far more than they enjoyed uh, the prior arrangement. Do you think it, it, 
where things are, they could risk going back to something like that? I mean, I think it depends on where they feel like they're going. I think mm-hmm. if they feel like they have a great you know, relationship with uh, the bloc, then maybe. Um, I think the two party leaders, Mr. Singh and Mr. Trudeau, do have a good relationship. I think the people who help work this agreement have a great relationship, so it's easy to have a conversation with. So it's an easy dance partner, but also it's a way to also prevent people from voting in DP. You know, you can say that we're a progressive party. We're delivering on these issues. And, you know, you could say, you know, Mr. Singh does have a platform on this now. But it doesn't mean that during an election, he's going to be able to own that, right? It's easy for him to say that during a budget, during a Fed, saying we did this. But, you know, at the end of the day, people will just see the liberal government or the government of the day has been able to deliver on X, Y, and Z. Right. So I think for now, because it won't benefit anyone but the conservatives, I see it holding. But it doesn't mean it's going to have forever, but it also shows that it doesn't just mean that they're always going to agree with each other either. Right. Uh, you know, Lisa, we've got about 40 seconds left. So just, just to me, it seems like it wouldn't look great uh, for them to say that the liberals say they didn't live up to the word of the written agreement with the New Democrats. That, 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 that would be my gut instinct on it. What's your sense? You mean they may make a promise and they break it? Like, I mean, it's never happened in politics before, but let's, never just, let's just go there. It's a thought exercise. Yeah. Complete, well, I think it's completely <laughs> irrelevant. To be honest, I think they will choose the appropriate time for them to jettison the NDP, and then they'll go on and govern by themselves for as long as they possibly can, and then just show the distance and, and as Vandana said, just point out the fact that they're the government that delivers, and it's not about the, uh, about the NDP anymore, and just go after those votes. And hope right. that the NDP mm-hmm. dislikes the Conservatives more than they dislike the Liberals, which is a fair bet. Depends on the day, I think. All right, we're out of time. We've got to leave it there. I want to thank the Power Panel, Rob Russo, Vandana Cotter, and Lisa Wright. Thanks so much, gang. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.